This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. The Sepp Holzer's 10-step plan. Step number three, developing of more cultivated areas. Uh, step number four, enlarging areas under cultivation. Now, one of the things about that is something that I've talked about a lot with culture, and that is if you have this flat spot and you make a, a tall culture on that flat spot, you have effectively doubled your growing area in that spot because the sides of the culture take have have twice as much real estate than the flat spot. The power of trigonometry. Yes. <laughs> or geometry, perhaps. Sure. Um, all right. Uh, increasing productivity. And I think here he's talking about guilds a lot. Uh, number six, regionalization instead of globalization. And so that's something that he talked about a little bit earlier, but that's item number six. Uh, item number seven, agrarian reform. And I'm going to read just the first sentence, the first two sentences. Every citizen of this world is entitled to a piece of land. There should not be anyone without some land to work with. I just think that that's kind of magical. I mean, imagine if everybody, like that was a human right, that you get a, a piece of land. And maybe it's something like only 100 square feet or 200 square feet. It's a, it's a patch. You could have a small garden. And, uh, I mean, and then maybe there's a patch right next to yours that is not being tended. And, and it's like, I'll gladly look out for that, for your patch for you when you're not here, if you want. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm making this part up, but this is, I, I, I love this idea. What if everybody could have a little garden? Like, that's like a, that's, that's a, a human right of some kind. Um, I just think that that would be amazing and profound. Sorry, I, I kind of got off in my mystical land of, um, of hoping, I guess. All right. Uh, number eight. Neighborly help and the community. Number nine, and I'm going to read all of number nine. Number nine, conservation and promotion of ancient wisdom, e.g. methods of preservation. And, I, and the reason why I want to read this is because it's like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is exactly what we've put into the skip stuff. Um, so emphatically. 
We need to learn and share the knowledge of preserving food with easy and natural methods. There are methods that do not require a fridge, freezer, electricity, or other technical equipment. The air drying of meat, curing, salting, and keeping food in wood ash are some almost forgotten techniques. Desiccation and canning are old methods of preservation, and nowadays there's also solar dehydration. Herb and medicinal plant lore also needs to be preserved. Wild herbs as vegetables are incredibly healthy and potent. <sighs> Number 10, changing our educational system. Okay, so there you go. Uh, Sepulcher's 10-point plan to combat world hunger. Katie, you got anything on this? Only 10 low, low installments of $99.99. <laughs> okay, next up. <laughs> next up is kind of amazing. It's like, it's like a massive book all in a single page. It's like everything that everybody wants to hear all in one page. So you might have gotten frustrated that I wasn't reading all the things about the 10-step plan. But if I read this entire page, it'll be worth it. So here we go. Holter's Permaculture for Self-Sufficiency Gardens and Small Holdings. I often do an exercise with the students in my workshops. What would you do with a hectare of land which is not producing, has poor soil, a low pH value, steep slopes, and needs to feed you and your family as quickly as possible. How would you revitalize ground and vegetation? The land should give you good yields within a few months. I can cooperate with nature everywhere, and the land can feed me everywhere, too. Once I have had success under difficult circumstances, I will have success anywhere. People will hear about it and feel inspired. This is what I believe to be the most effective way. I get two or three pigs or piglets, ideally one male and two females. Then I divide my hectare of land into four paddocks of 2,000 to 3,000 meters squared, and I separate each with a fence. Then, I cultivate the land as described earlier on page 108. At a low cost, I can achieve a lot with this method. Once the ground is opened up, free of cockchafer grubs, I've never heard of cockchafer grubs, and voles, and nicely composted with pig manure, I sow lettuces, radishes, herbs, and also potatoes and grain. The pigs are moved to the next paddock, and I watch the vegetables grow. Cultivating polycultures activate soil life and bacterial flora. I have my first salads and radishes after five to six weeks. 
followed by peas and beans. The first harvest will be relatively small, but it will get bigger and better all the time. By then, the pigs have, will have worked the second paddock, and within a few months, I'll have turned my previously unproductive land into a beautiful garden with great soil and full of biodiversity. A beautiful cycle develops as I finish harvesting from the first paddock. The pigs have finished cultivating the fourth, and they're ready to go back to the first one. They can eat my leftovers, and the whole cycle begins anew. Simultaneously, I start with the second step. I plant berry bushes and fruit trees in between the vegetables. I will have the first harvest after two or three years. The total yield will increase with every year. I can feed my whole family by creating such an edible landscape. Oh, it looks like Jeff has provided us with pictures of these grubs. What a weird name, cockchafer grubs. What a weird looking bug. Look at that thing. Chickens love them if you can, if you find them. Oh, okay. They look like something a chicken would gobble up. That one picture of him is so cute. The, the second row down on the left with the ears, little fan head. What a cutie. <laughs> Oh, Katie, I can't trust anything you call cute ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Just because it's cute doesn't mean it's not dangerous. (laughs) So, um, all right. Katie, I need your feedback. I need you to agree with me that this is like, this is like the page, the page everybody wants. I mean, how to be self-sufficient. In one page. This is great. I agree. So um, I'm moving. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff. There's so much practical advice, the creating of a self-sufficiency garden. He goes into a bunch of steps and a lot of details. He's got basically it's kind of like a whole PDC in a few pages here of stuff. Like here's the questions you have to ask yourself and document and figure out. And it's like, um, while this is fascinating and important, I have to draw the line somewhere. I feel like that one page, I, that one, that one was the golden stuff. Now, the next, the next bit I have marked off to share is a uh, comedy. Uh, have you seen this thing that he calls the Falcon Ho? <laughs> yes, yeah. I've seen pieces of it. Uh, but okay. before you go on, yeah. Um, he says, I plant berry bushes and fruit trees in between the vegetables. Does he mean in between the pig areas? Because I know in the first couple years of a fruit tree, that's not going to stand up to a pig. Oh, will it? Really? What if What if you put the bone sauce on it? Maybe. Uh, the berry bushes and the fruit. Did the pigs not like the bone sauce? I thought it was no, Apparently, nothing likes the bone sauce. Anything, anything that has the ability to smell better than us. So to us, it smells like... Uh, like like uh like you've cleaned an old barbecue grill, right? I mean, there's a certain smell to that, and that's the bone sauce smells like. And I think that like to animals that can smell, like a pig can smell, um, and the deer of course can smell, but to them it smells like 
like death or something. I mean, it smells so, so horrible that they, they give it, they give it a lot of room. They, they steer clear of it. I didn't realize pigs also, because deer, you know, they're not terribly carnivorous, but pigs could eat just about, you know, a lot of stuff. It's true. It's true. But, um, I don't know. Maybe you, you bring up a good point. Maybe, maybe it won't work. But my reading of this suggests that those, um, Bushes and trees are planted out between the vegetables, and eventually the pigs will be in there. Now, I also know that um, in 2009, outside of, I think it was Tacoma, uh, I went to a property and uh, and with Sep. And so there's, I don't know, like like 40 or 50 of us there to hear Sep say his thing. And this property was probably about four acres, I'm guessing. And they had run goats in there for a long time uh, because it was all blackberry vines. Because that's the thing in the Tacoma area, in the Pacific Northwest, is that if you don't stay on top of it, the blackberry vines will come in and take over everything. Now, I imagine in Hawaii it's something else, but it's kind of like that's how everything – because my understanding is that if you're going to garden in Hawaii, it's most of it is about keeping everything else out of your garden. Yeah. There's like whole trees will come in and just totally take over in short order. Oh, in I mean, six months, you can have these huge trunks that want to just fall over on everything. Um, and my understanding is, is that horticulture in Hawaii is complicated by, you know, a dozen other things that – like that we don't have in Montana, for example. Um, red ants is one of them. Um, most of this, not on your island, but some of the other islands, it's like the way that you um, make a hole to plant your seeds is with a pickaxe. True? Oh, yes. Especially parts of the big island, you have to blast a hole to plant a fruit tree. And, and what you're blasting a hole in isn't fluffy and soft or even smooth rock. It's that rock that's used to scrape the skin off of everything. <laughs> it's like volcanic rock with the holes in it, usually. Right. It's And it's sharp. It's like you can't go... That's the other thing I heard is you can never go barefoot. Oh, you know, that's not true. But some places it's true. There are places that's true, but a lot of places it's not true. Hawaii okay. is a lot of different places in one place. Okay, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> and then uh, something about ants. There's some fire ants. You don't want the fire ants. They're working hard to, to not have them. Right. But if you have them, it's it's a bad day. And then, of course, earlier we talked about those slugs. And so for most people, they just don't eat produce that's grown in Hawaii because there's because of the fear of the slugs. Yeah, there's a fear of the slugs. But we don't have raccoons or voles or moles or a bunch of different things. Right, right, right. It would be hard for the moles to dig down in that rock that you're using a pickaxe oh. to plant a seed. There's um, lots of places where there's dirt. It's, there, are, there are places where there is no dirt. And there okay. are some islands that are just way younger, way millions of years younger. Um, and then ones that are older. And, but this island has lots of dirt. Okay. The other thing I've heard about Hawaii is that um, uh, you will get mold on everything. This um, is true. Yeah. The, like I heard somebody say they showed up to Hawaii, they set their backpack down, and a week later, their backpack was covered in mold. 
you got to clean stuff more. There, mold is a serious issue in, yeah. the, in, the, in the wetter areas. There's wet and dry on every island because of the way the wind and the water work. It blows water uphill and then drops the water. So there's dry areas. So it depends where you are. Some areas you can still keep your 1920s books and they, they survive, but other areas that's still would be impossible. Um, I've, I've heard that there in Hawaii there is a great deal of heartbreak because new people will come and you'll get to be wonderful besties for life and then they, they come to the conclusion that Hawaii is not for them for possibly some of the reasons we just listed and then they go back to the mainland. That is very true. It's often economic. It's very difficult to find jobs that support the rent here. Ah, okay, okay. So anyway, the, the things I've heard, is, so I just kind of, I've, I've heard of so many wonderful things about Hawaii. And then at the same time, I um, have been learning in the last few years about the uh, the other side. bag. Okay. We're talking about the Fock and Ho. And of course, I'd love to say it. <laughs> Look at that beautiful hoe. And there it's got a picture of him holding it. And he's so happy and he's, he's got it there in his hands. And I, and the guy that's, that makes these and sells these is on Kermes. And, uh, we've had a couple of times where we've had giveaways. I mean, I think we have a giveaway almost every week of either a book or a product or a ticket to something. Uh, but you gotta be on the dailyish email to get it. Um, but you know, yeah, there's the Fockenhoe, and then there's, um, uh, he's got a new kind of Fockenhoe. Yeah, there's the picture right there the, of, of Seth being something. He's even, so he says, the Fockenhoe, a great garden tool. So it's written right in his book. He's even got like a big sidebar just about how awesome the Fockenhoe is. Um, but here's, here's an important thing, and this is actually something that I put in my book. Vegetarians also benefit from keeping animals because animals make great friends. Chickens and pigs supply manure, manure and work the ground. Fish eat mosquitoes and their larvae. Ducks and other fowl eat slugs. And there it is again, the cockchafer larva. <laughs> I just, I just realized that, uh, this larva sounds like something men don't want. <laughs> so I just just figured that out. The cockchafer. It's like, oh man, that sounds uncomfortable. Okay. Um. The next section. Oh, oh, it just it's just so delicious. There's so much good stuff here. I'm trying to. Uh, so we got a couple more pages to go. Then it gets into the section about hugo culture, and we're not even going to do hugo culture today. We're going to run out of time. But it says creating. High beds, and he has high beds in quotes, creating high beds as property boundaries. And now, um, by high beds, he means berms. So um, I'm not sure why the translator went with high beds instead of berms, but fair enough. Um, I, I know that on many times uh, I've been hanging around with Seth, but he's talking about berms. The translator used the word berms, and that was great. It worked, it worked fun. Um, but, uh, uh, high beds. Okay. Creating high beds is property boundaries. A large property usually needs some wind and noise protection and also a screen to allow privacy. 
The high bed is all that. It creates multiple microclimates, and because it is built high, it also more than doubles the area for cultivation. Soil is banked up to three meters high all around the property. Now, it seems like in Dayton, he was very emphatic, five meters high. But, okay, so it says here, three meters high. Fair enough. So that's ten feet high. Soil is banked up to ten feet high all around the property. The high bed, the berm, is shaped like a dam with two terraces in step shape. And so I see, I see images shifting as Jeff scrambles for an image. And he doesn't quite have it yet. Uh, the bed should keep its shape, and the center is therefore made of soil and not filled with biomass like a hubiculture. The terrace should be 1.5 meters high to enable easy management. Okay. Now, there is a picture on page 127, and um, so the, the picture, you can see something that is clearly 10 feet high, and about halfway up, it's kind of like got a, let's say a trail. Now, I always thought step one of these to be eight feet wide. Now he's saying one meter wide, but um, uh, fair enough. And I think in some of this stuff, he says uh, uh, one and a half to two meters wide, so um, four to six feet wide. Now, so, so basically, I'm going to try and paint a picture for you. If you're looking at it from the end, and it's ten feet high, then it looks like there's a hubiculture on top, and then there's a road on the left and a road on the right, and then a slope down below those roads. The road is about five feet off the ground, about halfway up. And then there's, in between the two roads, there's like two roads in parallel separated by a hugelkultur. So I'm not sure how to better describe this. If you're looking at it from the side, then you kind of see a steep hugelkultur face that's on the ground, and it goes only five feet high. And then there's a flat spot, a path, a trail, and then there's another hoop coaster on top of that. So that's that's what I see in this picture. Um, I've, I I really encourage you to get the book, so if nothing else, you can look at the pictures. Okay, the next bit says that the terraces should be at least a meter wide to allow easy access. All right. Um, the bank will need to be watered for the first few years. So the, by the bank, I think we're talking about the berm. will need to be watered for the first few years. Once humus is built up and groundwater is being pulled up, you know, from tap roots, the watering can be reduced. The boundary high bed should be curved whenever possible, and that's curved from left to right, not up and down. 
So the high bed should be curved. The berm should be curved whenever possible because that creates more microclimates, sun traps, and spots that are wind-protected. A curved shape also creates more harmony than a straight one. Ideally, all neighbors would work together to achieve this. Oh, oh, what is? what are you looking at there? So that, there's my images. That's my artwork. And it's called Sepholzer Permaculture, sepholzer.info. Is that Sepholzer's site? <laughs> He's using my images. It is. <laughs> so speaking of Sep using my stuff, I gotta, I, I just gotta say this again. And so when I met Sep in 2009, I spent several weeks with him and, um, I remember one time he's giving a presentation and he's showing the culture stuff and it's got to be seven feet tall and everything he's showing us, it's all in straight lines. And so during a break, I brought a translator with me and went to talk to him and I talked about the idea of how I thought it would be good for the cultures to be in curvy lines so that way the wind can't get between the cultures. And then he gave the answer that he gave to everybody who ever asked a question like this, which was, catastrophe! Clearly, my idea was a really bad idea, and I hadn't thought it through. And then his new book comes out, and everything's all curvy, like the way I suggested at that thing. So I'm taking credit for the curvy stuff, okay? That's what I'm saying. Just taking credit here. I know it's an arrogant and... And shallow thing to do, but I'm doing it because Sep is super awesome and super. Yeah, look at that picture. Look how curvy that stuff is. Just three years later. <laughs> it's so curvy. Bunch of wiggly snakes for the people on the podcast. Yes, yes. I am amazing. I convinced Sep Holster of something. I, I have great pride in this. And I, if people don't believe me, I understand why you won't believe me, and that's cool. I know he was all about straight hugel cultures until I said something to him, and he told me it would be a catastrophe. So, all right, that's all I've got. That's everything. Katie, is there anything else in this section of the book that you would like to talk about before we end this podcast? Do you want to describe verbally the Falcon Ho? <laughs> um, well, first there's the name. I love the name. Uh, but it, it doesn't look all that, all that, uh, typical. Like I would, I would think that a person with some scrap iron line around probably make it themselves. But I, I do enjoy this, this guy that's, that makes them and how he's been made, you know, somewhat famous through SEP. And SEP has been, you know, willing to talk about it so much. And so I kind of feel like, yeah, 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 yeah. Buy, buy it from the guy. Um, but okay. So you've got a straight stick and on the end of the stick, it's kind of like there's a piece of flat metal that has a curve in it. And the bottom side is sharp, but it's, there's a little bit more to it. So it's kind of like there's a curve in it and it's kind of warped to one side. 
Um, so there's a bit of a curve and a warp. Um, I, I think a person could probably make it pretty easily, but I hope people will buy it from the, the Russian guy that sells them. His name is spelled F-O-K-I-N, right? That's the name of the hoe. Yeah. Yeah. The guy that we buy him from is named Yuri. Oh. Y-U-R-Y. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I, oh, indeed. I don't know why it's, uh, what is the relationship between Yuri and the Fakano? I don't care. But, um, the, the important thing is, is that we get them from Yuri and, uh, and, and that, that it's called a Fakano. But the thing is, is that, um, it makes it easy to, uh, uh, do a little chop and drop of stuff that's a little far away from you up on that, uh, that Hugel culture there. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Uh, so Jeff's got a picture of it up, but only here it's called the Plaz Carez. <laughs> All right. It, 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 that's it. Like, it almost looks like a knife at the end of a stick, like a sticking out straight. Is one edge of it sharp? And, and yes. the one you start looks a little bouncy, like it might have a little bit of bounce to it, but the other one sometimes is more like a curved in the middle for more of a stabbiness down as opposed to a sweepy on the side. Well, and I got, I got, like Yuri's um his his emails that he sends he sends like an email every two weeks and it's like he says he's got a a brand new uh fock and ho design that he says is heart shaped and it looks interesting, but I'm not sure if it's gonna be as good. I we don't have it here yet. We just so here this is this is the picture of the fock and ho here that I think is really good. Um, and, uh, it really kind of gives you an idea of what it's shaped like. And it's like, it's the way that you attach it to a stick is incredibly simple. It couldn't possibly be any simpler. Um, so, but the, the neat thing is, is that you can, um, harvest something that's up at the top and pull it towards you really easily. So one, one edge of this bent metal is sharp. So you can you can use one end for choppy choppy and the other and you can use the pointed part for stabby stabby like into the ground if you needed to. But yeah, it's an interesting thing. The other thing Oh, oh just to, so for those who don't like to say fuck and ho, which I don't know who would not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> called Plaskarez or flat cutter or swage ho. Uh, according to Almighty Google. <laughs> really assuage anyone's problems with the other name of it. Uh, ho is awesome. The great thing is, is when you call it the ho, and if anybody gets all weird about it, it, it peeps the dumb fucks away. <laughs> plus, plus it's a ho. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, I'm a professional. <laughs> <laughs> we're all professionals here. Yeah, we are we're professionals. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which way, which right. way? Anyway, um, the other thing that I noticed that I really liked was he was talking about plants at the top of this sperm being drier and plants at the bottom being wetter. And he specifically mentioned strawberries and straw flowers doing well in the dry and peanuts and aloe vera doing well in the dry area in southern climates. So I thought that was really interesting. I don't think strawberries would do pretty very well. Strawberries have pretty shallow roots. 
They, uh, they, I think they suffer in the drive. No, yeah, that's baffling. But, uh, aloe, of course, uh, is a succulent. So aloe, yes, aloe would do well up at the top. Here in, uh, cold climates, we tend to put a lot of sunshokes up there, but, uh, we've had some burns with sunshokes at the top and after four years, they gave up. Um, yeah. there are no sunshokes there now. But so, the funny thing is, is that they, for those four years, they did produce a lot of sunchokes, and some of those sunchokes, like, fell out and rolled to the bottom of the berm, <laughs> where they're doing great. They're like, it's so wet here. I love this stuff. They moved house. Yeah. Yeah. They moved on. They're just, like, falling out. Hey, so I've got a question. Okay. Um... Right above the planting heading, he says soft fruit planted at a 45-degree angle can additionally support the banks of these high beds or berms. Uh, what is that? Is that a soft tree fruit? Is that what he's talking about, planted at a 45-degree angle? Okay, so first... What the fuck does that mean, planted at a 45-degree angle? Because <laughs> I was reading that, and I was kind of like, is there a tr- – because one of the things we've talked about in reviewing this book is, are there some translation errors here? I mean, so there, there were a couple of things where I thought, oh, this is making a good point, and then it took a hard left into, like, I don't I, – that must be a translation error. But, um, okay, let's let's just do this. Um, if you're going to plant a hugel culture, of course, Sepp is going to say you're going to make the sides of it really steep, like almost vertical. Not quite, but almost vertical. And then people that are familiar with working with soils or with uh, sand or, or dirt or something like that will talk about the angle of repose, which is going to be quite shallow, like a three-to-one slope. And uh, and they're going to say, no, 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 no. It cannot be done. However, Sepp will be very angry if you don't make it very steep. And in, in his other book, Sepp Holter's Permaculture, it shows a woman standing next to a, a hugu culture bed, and she reaches out. She's not even reaching very far. She's just she's standing perfectly comfortably. There is a bend in her elbow, and she's harvesting fruit off of it with that while standing up completely upright. And she's, she's you know, harvesting the fruit. She's got herself a little basket. She's putting her fruit into the basket. And it's like you get that when the sides are very steep. But if there's like a 45-degree angle slope, she's going to have to kind of scramble on that in order to be able to harvest food. And that's not going to be contained. So, the important difference is going to be engineering, soil engineering, structural engineering, happening inside of the culture, And that means all kinds of branches and sticks and stuff like that that are going in all sorts of different directions. Now, along those lines, give me just one moment to attempt to describe a beautiful YouTube video I once saw. And that is basically sandcastles. So this guy 
took a child's bucket and filled it full of wet sand and stuck it on the ground in his garage or on his driveway or whatever. And then he proceeded to put his hand on it and smash it. And it's like, okay, activate angle of repose. The sand couldn't hold it. Then he kind of did the same thing, but he'd put a little sand in and then he'd put in a paper towel. And put a little sand in and put a paper towel. Put a little sand in and paper towel. And he did it all the way up to the top. He probably did a paper towel every three quarters of an inch to an inch or so. Then he plopped it down again, and then he smashed it again. But this time it wouldn't smash. He pushed and pushed and pushed. He ended up parking his car on it, and it still wouldn't smash. Structural integrity. Okay? Soil engineering. So basically what we're doing is when we put those sticks into the culture all willy-nilly like that, it's kind of like giving, it's giving the culture this, this, these bones, this, this structure on the inside, the skeleton to kind of hold it up. So it will violate the angle of repose. Look, there's the picture. That's the YouTube video. Look, Jeff has done it. So there's the guy dropping his car on this pile of sand that happens to have these paper towels in it, and it does not smash! This is what we're doing to have steep Google cultures. And there's a, there's a lovely graphic. Okay. Now, now that I have said all of these things, what was the question? <laughs> Soft fruit. He says it many times. What is it? Is it a tomato? What is he talking about? Okay. Soft fruit? Oh, well, oh, I'm, I'm not sure. But I can tell you that anything that puts roots in there is going to help with the structural integrity of that, you know, soil to help it to violate the angle of repose. He's saying the high beds would be berms. They wouldn't be hula cultures. But he has talked about putting green branches on top and then stapling it down with branch sticks as, as like a nails. wooden staple. Yeah. He calls them nails. Um, yeah, he did. I don't, I didn't see it in this bit that we just read. Maybe it's coming up soon. Um, but, and I've got a problem with the nails that he uses. And we, we can talk about that in the next episode. Mm, yes. Um, but the thing is, is, okay, so one, let's talk about his berms in the middly, middle, middle part of the berms. It's just dirt. There's there's no hoogly bits. But as you get to the outside side, oh yeah, add your hoogly bits. Oh. Okay. He, he wasn't saying that as far as I could tell in the book, so that's a great addition. It's the way he said it. He said basically he said in the middle you don't add the wood. And that's all he said. Mm. Okay. Well, we could go find it and read it back. But I remember, like, like uh, thinking, right? No, I. That's what I do here too. Is that in the middle? There's no point in putting the wood in there. The roots just generally don't get that deep. Or the other thing is, is that as the humus kind of gets rinsed down, it'll end up there anyway. But the the important thing is, is that like in that berm that he builds, the top of the berm is basically just a, 
a hugel culture. Like one way of thinking about it is, is that like we could say that he made a platform that is 12 feet wide. Let's just say he, he made a berm, uh, that is 12, it has a top that's 12 feet wide and the bottom is 20 feet wide. So, um, it's, it's gotten, it's got these, uh, steep edges. So it looks like a, a raised road. And the outer edges have hoogly bits in it. And the middle is just dirt. Then on top of his road, down the middle, he built a hoogle culture. All right? Full of wood. This is, is the design of his berms. So there's a nice wide trail halfway up on either side, and the whole thing is 10 feet tall. Now, in this book, it's 10 feet tall. On my previous discussions with him, they were 15 feet tall. And if anybody asks me about this kind of stuff, I'm also going to recommend a berm, and I universally state for a berm, 15 feet tall. And when I talk about hoople culture, I always say at least seven feet tall. And granted, there are other uh, permaculture artisans out there, and they build hugel cultures much shorter than that. And um, But if I am asked, I'm not going to tell people to do what those people do. I'm going to tell people what I want them to do. Hugel culture, at least seven feet tall. And berms that are 15 feet tall. Did I now? Did I answer the question? Yeah, I think so. But okay. just I found something out about the soft fruit. Um, so if you translate that back into German, <laughs> and then look at the different uh, iterations of what that word means, I think we would say berries or berry fruit. Um, but it looks like it includes what we think of as berries, but also tomatoes. Um, something like mountain ash, appleberry, rosehip, things like that as well. Okay. It's a a translation thing. I think that the important thing is, is that once a lot of roots are getting established in there, that adds to the skeleton of the hugel culture. And so the more roots you have, the better your skeleton is. And plus you want those roots to be there because eventually your, um, your wood which your, is your original skeleton, is going to rot, right? So it's kind of like, okay, well, when that rots, what's going to replace it? And so hopefully you're going to have some trees and shrub roots and stuff like that that are going to provide the living skeleton that will replace the rotting skeleton. Does that help? That's great. Okay. Thank you, Jeff, for looking that up. That's, that is cool to know. All right. Anything else about this section of the book that we're reading? In that case, I'm going to say, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where it's awesome all the time. (laughs) Where we we talk about the mighty, the glorious, the amazing sepulcher, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton 
and make a pledge for future artifacts. Mm-hmm.